Okay, Parshas, Parshas Va'era, Parshas Va'era, this is the Parsha where, when, I should say, when the Jews start off the Parsha in exile, and by the time we're finished with the Parsha, they are not actually out of exile yet, but they're definitely out of the, the, the work, they're out of the slavery per se, the Makos are in full force. The plagues are in full force. There are seven plagues in. The Egyptians, Egypt is being decimated and destroyed. And the, so to speak, the, uh, the abysmal, the, 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 just the bleak um, parsha of starting off with the, the pain and the crying of the Jews. By the time the parsha is over, the 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 how do you say the the attitude has uh, has shifted to some some level of optimism and hope for redemption in the near future. So let us begin right in the beginning of the parsha. First verses in the parsha, page three eighteen in the Art Scroll English Blue Book Blue Um Chumash three eighteen three nineteen. And it starts as follows: Vayedaber Elokim El Moshe Vayomer Elov Ani Hashem, and Elokim, God, tells Moshe Vayomer Elov, and He tells him Ani Hashem, I am your God. Okay. Vayera El Avram Vayitzlag Yaakov Vekel Shaka Yishmi Vayin. He goes continues on, and He gives him a whole speech of how He's going to redeem them. And the famous four, four lashonos um, of Geula, the four different words, different um, languages. I don't know how to say it in English. The four lashonos of Geula, terms or phrases of redemption that we are. I'm, I, I hope that we are all familiar with. Maybe not necessarily the Hebrew words, but the basic concept that there were four um, expressions of redemption. Um, and in fact, when we on the Seder night, when we have four cups of wine, the four cups of wine we drink are to commemorate these four um, expressions of redemption. One is Hitsesi, Hitsesi, I will take you out. Hitsalti, I will save you. Goalti, I will redeem you. And Lakakti, I will take you. I'll take you out. Each different, different, um, expressions of redemption and there's a fifth one incidentally which is commemorated by the the fifth cup in in by the seder night the coastal eliyahu the cup of elijah the prophet which is vehivesi which didn't happen yet it commemorates the time the coming of um of mashiach of the messiah okay then the torah goes to the lineage of moshe and I'm just as an, as a side point, it just I would be remiss if I don't say this. The Torah tells us right after the second Aliyah, so in the next page, 320, 321, halfway through the page, the Torah starts listing all of the children and grandchildren of Yaakov, all the, the of the Jews. And it, where is the lead? It leads right into Moshe to Moses and it ends off right there. So clearly implying that the only purpose, the sole purpose of this counting or naming of the Jews was just to get to the lineage of Moshe. 
we didn't want to start with Moshe because Moshe wasn't from the oldest. Moshe was a descendant of Levi, which was the third tribe. So the Torah tells us all of Reuven's children, all of Shimon's children, and Levi's children until Moshe. So why does the Torah do this? It should, shouldn't it seem, uh, it seems pretty random. So the, the commentaries tell us a very interesting thing, that the Torah is telling us that when people, other religions have this, but Judaism doesn't have this idea where the Torah is telling us, I'm, I'm taking a very large um, topic and just shrinking it into like two sentences because this is not the main point. It just It's such a beautiful point. Basically, the Torah is telling us Moshe Rabbeinu, our leader, the greatest leader, the greatest Jew that ever lived, he was a regular guy. He had regular parents. He had regular siblings. He had cousins. He had aunts. He had uncles. There was nothing fishy going on. Regular guy. Never ever in the whole Torah did anyone ever claim anything fishy about Moshe. Right in the beginning, when Moshe gets his mission, Moses gets his mission, what happens? The Torah lists the entire lineage. Moshe had a regular guy, he had cousins, he had uncles, he had parents, he had a father, he had a mother. And we will end that thought over here. Everyone, put it, I assume everyone picked that up pretty clearly. And we will move on just because, again, I would be remiss if I didn't say that because it's just so important. But I'm going to continue. And God, in this week's parasha, tells Moshe, I am going to slave paro. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. What does that mean? I'm going to harden Paro's heart. It means I'm going to basically make it that he can't. Um, he can't um, let you guys go. Why is he doing this? Why is God doing this to Pharaoh? Why is God doing this to Paro? Because God wants to be able to give, well, he wants to pay retribution, he wants to pay back. He wants to really lay it to the Egyptians. If Pharaoh lets them go after one plague, it'll be over, that'll be it. He wants to make a display of fireworks beyond our great, the greatest uh, imagination. So every time he says, go ask Pharaoh if he's going to let you go, and Pharaoh says, no. And the Torah is telling us, Pharaoh didn't have a choice. And this is a very, 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 very difficult um, thing to understand because, like we all know, God had gave us in this world free will. Free will is the premise, the basis of all things Jewish. In fact, probably I would assume any religion is, has some sort of basis to free will. So how do we understand this? What is this supposed to mean? He hardened Pharaoh's heart? He hardened Pharaoh's heart? This seems to be totally totally contradictory to 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 any anything that we everything that we stand for everyone agrees I think that's a pretty compelling question okay so I as you can imagine was not the first person to ask the question all the commentaries discuss this and all of them give basically different answers but says Rav Dessler Rav Dessler was one of the most uh one of the most profound Torah thinkers in the last um, hundred years, I guess. He, lived, he passed away in the 1950s, I think, 1954, I think, somewhere around there. 
And he was one of the greatest Torah thinkers. He was, I think he was European. He was in, in during the war, he ended up in England for a period of time. He was in London, he was in Gateshead. Eventually he ended up in Israel and he became the Mashkiach, the um, spiritual mentor, I, I guess you would call him Mashkiach of a yeshiva in the yeshiva of Panovich. So he was a great Torah thinker. His classic book, his magnum opus, is called Mikhtav Meliyahu. It was basically, it wasn't really, it was basically, I think, I don't even know if he wrote the book himself or they were written based on his lectures. But either way, they're definitely, um, it's, it's a Torah classic till this day. And they have an English translation of it called Strive to Truth, amazing uh, English translation of it, written by one of his his uh, British students. And he um, basically discusses these ideas, and he says it's all one basic idea. I'm going to share with you um, in the Rishonim the, the different ideas. I'll, I'll just try to explain them very, very briefly as separate answers. And then when we get to the way of Dessler explains that he puts them all into one big and says, really, they're all saying the same thing. Of Dessler says, they're all saying the same thing. So the Rambam, Maimonides, Hilchas Tshuva, the laws of repentance, he says as follows. He says, we know that God allows everyone to do Keshuva, to repent. So what happens in, in the middle over there? He throws in. So what happened to Pharaoh? God didn't allow him to repent. So he says something very interesting. He says that, Sometimes we can fall so low that the punishment for the actual sin is the fact that in this level, when you stoop so low, this person can actually, as a punishment for his sin, he can lose his ability to repent. That's what he says. Okay? And we're going to explain this further, okay? The Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra, which was another one of the early commentaries, um, has a different approach. He says that, um, basically he says that the derech teva the way of nature, is that when a person stoops so low, he cannot climb out of his lowness. And again, different um, ways, uh, different other commentaries, the Ramban has a, the Nachmanides has a different uh, answer. Uh, Rav Dessler explains it and he says that they're all saying the basic idea. They're all saying the same basic idea, which is as follows. Sometimes, the way the Rambam says it is the punishment. The way that Evan Ezra says it, it's a natural cause. Sometimes when we do something, we, have a, we sin, we do something, it's a natural residue that is left on our body or left on our soul. And it's not necessarily a punishment per se. Rather, it is a is a is a, it is it is a natural um, cause and effect. Where someone does something, and the sin itself will uh, will lower himself to a, to a lower level. And as a very extreme example that will bring out the point, I will share with you a a, a very thought provoking question that uses this premise to answer the question. And this 
question and answer will really bring out the point beautifully. Okay? So there's once a guy, I'm making up the story, once a guy that was standing on the top of the World Trade Center or on top of the Brooklyn Bridge or in St. Louis, we'll call him on top of the arch or any other fancy tall building that you will die if you fall, jump off the top of. And he's about to jump off the top. Okay? So, yeah, it sounds very uh, not so exciting. <laughs> he is about to jump off the top of this big building. And there's a guy who's screaming at him, don't do it, don't jump. And you know what this person responds? He's a brilliant guy. Okay, he's wearing his big kippah and his long beard. He says, well, if God wants me to die, I'm going to die regardless. And if God wants me to survive, he'll figure it out. So let me jump. And if God wants me to die, I'll die. If God wants me to die, right? It's a very compelling argument. So you're stuck there. You're his counselor trying to convince him to stay up there and not jump. What do you, what do you answer? What do you answer him? Now I'm going to yeah, open it up to anyone. Anyone have a good answer for me? But you want to save this person's life. What do you say? Right? Seems like a compelling, um, um, compelling, uh, no, no, you're right. Go for it. Jump. That That's the wrong answer, clearly. So what do you say to the guy? Anyone have any good answers? What happens if the person was your best friend? What, what do you say? You, you will grab the guy and slap him down. What happens if you if you give nothing to say? What do you say? What do you tell the person? So, since no one else has given me any good answers, I will share with you what Rabbi Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller, who is a classic, uh, again, another great um, classic Torah mind, big, deep Jewish thinker. Um, and he says as follows. He says a beautiful thought, which is, I mean, I don't know how you can make it. Someone thinking about suicide, a beautiful thought, but the thought is beautiful. He says, sometimes you can stand on top of a tower and at that moment, if you were to look theoretically and see God's plan for you, God's plan is that you should live and you should stay alive. But as soon as you jump as an as a cause and effect, God can say, I can punish you for jumping. For the fact that you're jumping, you can deserve. So it means that if I don't jump, I don't deserve desire. But as soon as I jump, the fact that I jump, that jumping can have a punishment of, of dying. Which means that as soon as the person jumps and he says, and he does something what we would call foolish or stupid or any other word you want to use, the fact that he did something stupid, that cause has an effect. So either you can say cause and effect, or you can say punishment, whatever it may be. But that act of jumping has a effect, an effect of death, or whatever it may be. So I cannot tell God, I will swallow some poison and say, well, it's in your hands, God. No, God can say, well, if you swallow poison, I'm going to punish you, and, and the poison is going to... I'm not going to necessarily make a miracle for you. And this is basically our thought process. This is basically the theme that we're trying to explain. Where God, this is, I'm giving you very, very physical, very, very um, um, physical examples. But God is telling us, you're, 
actions that you do in this world don't only have an effect in the spiritual world, they can have a very, 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 very fast, quick effect in this world too. And again, the Rambam, Maimonides calls it a, 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 a punishment as it, as it were. The Ibn Israel calls it a cause and effect as it, as it were. But however you want to frame it, it's the same thought process. Whereas someone can do something um, that is, and that, that itself, the action itself can lead directly into the effect where the effect is whatever it may be, whether it's death or, or, or whatever it may be. So says the Rav Dessler, that that's what's going on over here with, with that's what says Rav Dessler, that that in essence is what's, is what going, is what's going on here with, with Paro, with Pharaoh. This Pharaoh has stooped to such a low level where the effect that he, he ruined himself so much where he just affected himself so much where he was not able to do truth anymore. He was not able to, not as a punishment. God didn't remove his, his ability. God didn't just take away his heart and say, you can't do tshuva. God didn't do it. He did it himself. He moved himself to a place where there was no going back. And there's many different examples you can share just to bring out the point. Any, uh, I mean, it's not, 100% true, but I'll just use it as an example. Any addiction can, can be a good example for this. When a person is heavily, heavily, heavily addicted to something, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's other things, it's it's almost impossible. It's possible, and 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 right, there's definitely programs for it, but for a for a in a basic, basic level, we will assume for for practical sense that it's almost impossible to get yourself out of an addiction so what happened to the person's free will so he has free will but he has put himself in a situation where he himself caused himself to be in a situation where it's practically impossible to to escape he put himself in a vicious cycle where it's practically impossible to escape it will never be 100% impossible. That wouldn't be possible. But in a practical sense, it's basically impossible to escape. Okay? So the, the there's a, I just share with you an example where, where something, a story that I heard from someone, it could have happened a thousand of, thousands of times. I just, incidentally, I just spoke to my father before the, the, the class and he shared with me that when in his, where he works, this, these are commonplace. These things are not, these things are very classic stories, but this is a true story that happened with someone. So whether you, whether it's a story that happens a hundred times or it's a story that happened once, it's a good story. So there was once a guy, he had a business and his business had, we'll call it say 10 or 12 employees. And the 10 and 12 employees, there was one of them that really stood out that he wanted to give the guy a bonus. The problem was that all of the employees had big mouths and they couldn't shut their mouths. And he knew that if he gave the guy a bonus, that wasn't here about it. And they'll all be jealous. They'll all be upset. And no one was going to be happy. And he can't afford to give everyone else bonuses. And they didn't deserve it. He didn't know what to do. So he figured, you know what? He gives this guy a bonus. He gives him a way to make up a number. or give him a $100 bonus. And he says, please do me a favor. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Please, please don't tell anyone that I give you a bonus. 
Okay. So what happens? What happens is next day comes to work, and of course, they're all big fat blabber mouths. And within an hour, he's busy displaying his big bonus. Look what I got. Look what I got. Look what I got. You guys stink. The boss loves me the best. I'm the best. You guys all stink. And and suffice it to say that this boss. I don't know if he never gave him a bonus ever again, but he definitely thought twice before giving him a bonus ever again. <coughs> it's, it's, it's not going to work. I can't do this. It just you're, you're just doesn't make any sense to give you a bonus. You can't keep your mouth shut. So the idea obviously is that this guy, does he deserve a bonus? Of course he deserves the bonus. He got the bonus because he deserved it. He was the, the the employee of the month, whatever it may be. So why is the boss not giving him a bonus next time? Or at least thinking twice before giving him a second bonus. It's because he can't keep his mouth shut. So is that a punishment? Is, there, is the boss trying to punish him because he can't keep his mouth shut? Well, it's just a very practical thing. The boss is just being very practical. So this, is, this is just not going to work out. We have to find a different solution. You just very practical. The the guy can't keep his mouth shut. The boss won't give him another. He just won't give it to him again. It just it cause and effect. He deserves it. He may be the employee of the month. And next month again, he'll deserve the bonus again. He just won't get it. Why won't he get it? Because he can't keep his mouth shut. So these are the, just another example of something that can be a cause and effect. Even if the person genuinely deserves the the bonus. It just won't happen. Okay. Now, there's a lot of exciting stories with these things. This idea. But I just want to end off this point by saying that it works the other way as well. Schwab um, says over that this works the other way as well. We can affect our life for the good as well, obviously. We can affect our life positively so that when we grow, we surround ourselves with pure things with holy things just like um when we when we uh eat healthy and we exercise etc etc we can live a long healthy life it's not necessarily a i mean it's also again like we said before they're both um they go hand in hand um it's not necessarily a reward it's just a cause and effect if you eat healthy and you exercise properly and you watch your health you watch your heart you don't smoke you don't take drugs you don't drink alcohol so then right nature will tell you that you will presumably obviously the outliers but presumably you'll live a long healthy life now it doesn't work doesn't it's not across the board but for the most part it's not necessarily a reward per se it's the way nature works it's just cause and effect so it works like that also there's a there's a there's a uh a classic a, a, Classic example of how you can affect your surroundings is, is sometimes you have you have someone has to stay in a hospital for whatever it may be, a good thing, a baby, a child, or a bad thing, a surgery or an illness, or whatever it may be. So there's a very good trick that I was told. Whenever you go to a hospital, you always bring chocolates or things for the nurses. You always compliment the nurses from this moment you walk in. You say, oh, how beautiful you guys are. The nurses in this hospital, I heard such good things about you. And Somehow, some why the nurses always manage to to turn a blind eye to all the grumpy people, and the people who are 
who are in good spirits and always complimenting them, always get good care. Now, it's it's not obviously it's because they're happy with you, but when you have a when you when you when you share positive emotions and you and you make everything around you in a good place, it's not necessarily a reward that okay fine. So God is giving you a reward, or the nurses are rewarding you for being a nice guy. It's a cause and effect. The nurse is not rewarding you for being a nice guy. They're happy to be around you because you're a nice guy. It's a, again, it's cause and effect. So it goes both ways. It goes hand in hand. It goes for the bad and for the good. So this is a very important lesson in life. You could call it a punishment, call it cause and effect, whatever it may be. We can choose our own destiny. We can choose whether or not we can live in a higher life or we can choose living a lower life. Okay. Now I just want to continue on. The next topic I'm going to talk about is a very similar topic. In, in Hebrew, there's a phrase called which means from one topic to another topic within the same topic. So it's like a 1A a and 1B. Okay? So we're going to... I want to jump into the parasha. It is right over... I didn't write it down. It is, I'm going to find it, Pasuk Tess. So right in the beginning of the parish of the second page, 320, 321, um, chapter 6, verse 9. So God just made this promise to Moses, to Moshe, that I'm going to redeem the Jewish people. And then he says, go tell, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm just going to go back one no, he says, "Go." God says, "Go tell the Jewish people." So, Vayidaber Moshe. So Moshe goes. Cain el bnei Yisrael. Moshe speak spoke accordingly to the children of Israel. Velo shamu el Moshe, but they did not heed to Moshe. Mikotzer ruach umeavoda kasha, because of the shortness of breath and their hard work. So, just on a very very superficial level. They were shortness of breath is is just um, I guess symbolizes or just means that they were in a lot of pain and they were working very hard. May have the kasha and the hard work. Okay, so I heard a beautiful question and a beautiful answer from well not an answer but it's a thought from Rabbi Bender, Rabbi Yaakov Bender. He's the Rosh Shiva of. Yeshivas Darche Torah in Farakway. It's one of the largest yeshivas in. Um, well, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's the largest yeshiva, but it, it's definitely one of the largest yeshivas because it starts at pre-K, at kindergarten, and it goes right up to Beis Medrash. So between the whole thing, it's a huge campus. It's a beautiful, amazing yeshiva. Caters to the Farakway five towns, um, Long Island crowd. Um, and beyond, but that's where their home base is. And he's one of the, the great Rosh Hashivas of the present um, present day. And he asks the beautiful, a very interesting question. He says like this, what comes first, hard work or shortness of breath? So face value, I would say, first a person's working hard and he's in pain. And then there's shortness of breath is a result of the hard work. So the Torah, the words of the Torah are totally backwards because of the shortness of breath and hard work seems to be backwards. It should be, they did not listen to Moshe. Why did they not listen to Moshe? 
because they had hard work and the shortness of breath. Interesting question. So it's backwards. So first of all, before we jump into the answer, just the idea that they couldn't listen to Moshe because they were too busy and working too hard. The the Messias Hisharim, one of the classic um, Musa works, classic Torah thoughts, works of Torah thought, um, says, for based on this verse, that you can have the leader of the Jewish people crying out to you that I am going to save you, I'm going to redeem you from Egypt. And even that, even that promise of redemption, they couldn't process because there was such hard work and so busy and they just right paro pharaoh there's a whole um class within itself he worked them hard and 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 i'm sure i've said this many times my grandmother who was a holocaust survivor um used to always tell us that one of the ways that the nazis got the jews to 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 stay um, I don't know what the word is, to stay so um, muffled, what's the wrong, the wrong word, but to stem uprisings in general, for the most part, to stay so tame, whatever the word may be. One of the ways they did it, they had a lot of propaganda, but one of the way they did it, ways they did it was they kept the inmates always kept them busy, always kept them confused. And there was roll calls at two o'clock in the morning just to while to to mess everyone up. And they were always doing roll calls and roll calls and more roll calls. And everything was messed up and all the timings and the schedules. And everyone was always busy and always confused. And that was one of the, the tools they used, one of many. But that in essence is what happened over here with Pharaoh, with Paro. Where the people, the Jewish people, were getting the message from Moshe, from God Himself, with His, um, with the 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 messenger of Moshe, Moses, and they couldn't they couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't listen because they were so busy, they were so focused, they're so out of focus. I'm sorry, they just couldn't comprehend. And it happens to me. It's a lesson to us in life when we, again, we live life. If we don't stop to think, and we live our life just. Coming, going, going, waking up, going to work, eating lunch, going to sleep, and, uh, and the whole life revolves around just busy, 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 busy. Don't stop and focus. Then we lose focus in life, and we don't, don't connect. So where are we going? What are we doing in this world? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be accomplishing? We lose focus. We forget to think about what are we here for? Why did God put us here? Our life is 70, 80, 90, 100 years, 120, if you're really, really lucky, and 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 it's not we don't live forever. It's like God God put us here for a reason. Um. But anyways, so back to, that's that. So back back to us. Um. So why is the backwards? Why is it backwards? So Rabbi Bender says that we could see from here a beautiful thought, which is some people the shortness of breath. He says can um, represent a person's attitude. Some people get stressed out before the anything bad actually happens. The person is already stressing out over it. And the stressing out over the bad event usually is worse than the actual thing itself. As they say, the fear of the fear is worse than the fear itself. The fear of the fear is worse than the fear itself. Which means that, that sometimes we 
we have so, so much apprehension when it comes to whatever, maybe whether it's traveling overseas or, or, or a, a, a milestone or a, whatever it may be. And the, the, the trepidation and the nervousness over just totally overpowers our whole life. And, and that itself is what causes the, the, the us to get all shaken up much more than the thing itself. And that is the lesson we can learn out of this idea, which is that, which is that we can choose, in essence, we can choose how difficult our lives will be. Now, not, not technically or literally we can't choose, but practically we can choose our attitude in life. So we can choose when we wake up in the morning, we can choose. Imagine if we get a little text or a little email that says in five minutes, you will spill your whole breakfast all over your floor and all over your pants. Okay. And then you can prepare for it. So then you won't, as soon as it spills over your pants, you won't all of a sudden kill your whole day because you're prepared for it. So in essence, we can prepare ourselves for life. Every day we can plan, not necessarily with that type of detail because obviously we can't plan that our chicken soup will fall on our, our pants. But in essence, every day we have different things that go wrong. And we know that every single day something or many things will go wrong. And that's a fact of life. We are never surprised necessarily that things go wrong. We are surprised when they go wrong and how they go wrong, but not that things go wrong. Every day we know things go wrong. And then again, like we say, say, like we say every time, the flip side is also true. When we can do it the other way, when we can, when we can focus and say that I'm not going to let things get to me, I'm not going to let things get to me, then we can take our lives and say, how much of our life is truly avoided kasha? How much of our lives are truly hard work or truly terrible things? How much of it's really just attitude? Some of it is, is, is real. A lot of it's real, but a lot of it's really just attitude. So if we can assess and say, my life is, is, is an attitude, have a terrible attitude to life, then avoided kasha, then your whole life is going to be difficult. However, if you do it the other way, you say, I'm going to say, I'm going to have the positive attitude in life, then there will be things that will ruffle your feathers. But then we can look at it and say, you know what? These are things I can work on. And I just share with you, I want to, I need to share with you basic life, the basic life of Rabbi Finkel, of Nessensi Finkel. I'm, I'm sure most of you, some of you, all of you have heard of him. And if not, I will, I will share. I actually printed out a, a whole thing I typed up, but I forgot it. So I'm going to try to remember all the things that I, that I wrote. But basically, um, my Rabbi Fingal, of Nessensi Fingal, he was a young boy who lived in Chicago. He grew up in Chicago. He grew up on the two blocks away from where my wife's, where my wife lives. My wife's, I should say my in-laws live, actually. He lives two blocks down from my, my in-laws. And he his parents lived. He, he grew up there. And he grew up as a regular Jewish boy in those days, in the in the forties, I guess, thirties, forties. I'm not sure exactly. I didn't. I don't remember. These are the things I typed up that I don't remember. Um, and he went to Jewish uh, day school, which later became 
um, I think Ari, Ari Crown, I think that's what that's what it was, is was whatever, and he learned he studied um, Gemara in the afternoon with a with a tutor, like a lot of people did in those days, and uh, to make a long story short, when he was fourteen years old, his parents took him to a to a to Israel on a trip to visit the the, the the sites and things like that, and his great uncle was the Rosh Hashiva, his great uncle and his first cousin once removed, so his great uncle's um, son was the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem in Yushalayim. This Yeshiva had a few had a couple of hundred students at the time. He was fourteen years old. He went to visit the yeshiva. Rabbi Finkel, Rabbi Finkel Sr., great uncle, meets this 14-year-old boy and notices that he has a sharp, clear mind. And he tries convincing the parents, his his, his uh, nephew and niece, that to, to maybe keep him and let him study in yeshiva. Um, and eventually they said yes. And they let him study under his great uncle. And he studied there for a few years. And he uh, he turned out to be a fine young man. He studied very very a lot of uh, Gemara and things like that. And eventually he went back to America. He finished his, his studies. Finished his. I'm not sure if he went to college or he, I, I, I'm not sure if he went to high school or college. But whatever it is, went back. He was a regular guy. He was playing baseball on the baseball team. He was playing um, on basketball on the basketball team. Um, his friends called him Nady. He was a regular American boy. And eventually, after he finished his studies in America, he went back to Israel. And then he really, really studied, started studying in earnest. And to make a long story short, he grew, grew and grew in spirituality. And he became the, he married the daughter of his, he married his second cousin. He married the daughter of the Rosh Hashiva. His first cousin was removed. And eventually, after his cousin's passing, his father-in-law's passing, he became the next Rosh Hashiva. So when he became Rosh Hashiva, the Yeshiva had around um, a thousand, maybe a little over a thousand students. By the time he passed away, um, in the like around 10 years ago, the student body of the Yeshiva was 6,000 students. And there's probably six or seven buildings of the yeshiva. If anyone went to visit the yeshiva, or at least walk around the neighborhood, you will notice, you'll see just a huge, just, it's called, in, in the yeshiva lingo, they call it Mir Town. It's called Mir Town. Little, own little village. It's almost like a college campus type of town. It's a huge thingy. Anyways, to make a long story short, Rabbi Nassim Tzvifingol, if I were to describe this whole conversation to you, you would have never known However, he suffered from Parkinson's since the 1980s. So for over 30 for over 30 years, he had Parkinson's. And as he got older and older, it got worse and worse. And I remember he came to my yeshiva to to and he came collecting all over America. And he he uh it was it was hard to watch, it was hard to see. He spoke to us and 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 he demanded from us. Tremendous growth, as 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 a, when he spoke to us, and all these different things. 
and you looked at him, and you looked at him, and he was couldn't he was trembling and shaking, his whole body was, and you couldn't help but like think this person has grown and 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 against all odds as a person, as an individual, as a leader, as a as a rabbi, he his his institutions, and he never said no. He never said, you know what, I can't think of this anymore. You know what? This is crazy. This is this is why did God do this to me? He didn't say, you know what, I'm not feeling I'm sick. I'm gonna retire. I'm gonna let someone else take over. This is what he did. For he, he took his himself, his trials, and he had a, always had a positive attitude. And we can see from here, from him, we can learn if you learn one thing from him. God can throw the book at you. Hope not you. But God can throw the book at someone. And it won't change. It, some people, it won't change their attitude. And he used it as a vehicle for growth. And for us also, this idea is that we, can, we can't necessarily choose what tests we will get in life. But we can choose how we react. How we react to our tests. So we can't choose what tests God will give us but we can choose how difficult we will make our lives, how difficult our lives will be based on how we react to the tests, based on our attitude. So with that, I think we'll end. Uh,